Billy West Live, our guest, Dr. Julian Bales. Uh, Dr. Bales, the movie Concussion came out a few years ago. The, the genesis of the idea for the movie was Dr. Bennett Amalu, a friend of mine and yours, and his initial discovery of what he thought was an anomaly medically uh, in Mike Webster's brain. Talk about your involvement early on with Dr. Amalu and his research that became so prevalent and obviously turned into a Hollywood blockbuster movie. Uh, so Mike Webster was the first case. Actually, you know, what became known as CTE was first identified in 1929 by a doctor named Harrison Martland in New Jersey, and, and that was in boxers. And it was called dementia pugilistica, becoming demented from being a pugilist. And uh, we all grew up knowing about that. I don't recall any of our school teachers ever teaching us, but we all knew what punch drunkenness meant. It meant it had been hit in the head so many times, you became silly or drunk or really demented. So that went on, and I, I believe for probably, you know, 50 years, people sort of accepted, and uh, maybe people didn't care. You know, they thought if you were a former boxer, you, you know, maybe you had that coming to you. You know, you had somebody hit you on the head thousands of times. It's not surprising. So the 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 real uh, difference was with the Mike Webster case. That was the first in a the first case of a a. Uh, modern-day favorite, uh, America's favorite sport football, helmeted athlete. People probably felt uh, the, the helmet protected. Being diagnosed with dementia, which started in his 40s uh, from playing football. And so when he died, Bennett Amala, who was, uh, as he says, uh, a Nigerian-born neuropathologist uh, who didn't know anything about American football, noticed there was something wrong with that story. So he took the examination of Mike Webster to the next level. And that is, he took his brain and examined it uh, with special stains uh, for CTE, and that's when he first discovered it. And that was a published uh, report, and then there were others that followed. And uh, there was a lot of pushback at that time. Not, not many people accepted it or wanted it to be true. I didn't want it to be true. But the science continued to, to inform that there was something going on in a select group, in a minority of former players. And the, the movie, the portrayal of you by Alec Baldwin in the movie, um, you, you shared with me some anecdotes about the movie. But to share with our, our listeners, Dr. Julian Bell is our guest, how accurate was the movie in the, the way they portrayed you and your um, challenge as Mike Webster was your patient um, and then as you went through the process with Bennett and Dr. Amalu as he began the staining process which has led to a lot of other research we'll talk about in a minute. So I, I happened uh, to know Mike Webster both from my time at the Steelers and then uh, afterwards I tried to help him as one of his physicians and so we saw him in his 40s become demented. Uh, as I said, uh, there was not any real a, a acceptance or uh, congratulations to Bennett Amalo for this discovery. So I, I knew that there was something terribly wrong with Mike Webster. I had known him when he was alive, and I reached out to Dr. Amalo and said, let, let me help you on this research. And I, I support the concept that 
in, in some people that this is what's happening. And uh, it's still, you know, incompletely understood. Uh, uh, one of the biggest problems is there's no way to know someone has it till after they're dead. So until there's a way to test someone while they're alive, we really don't know how many people have it. Uh, if there's a treatment, we don't know the response to that. We don't know what we call the natural history, what happens to them if they're left alone. We don't know the true uh, incidence or prevalence. So that that is really the holy grail to me is making a living diagnosis. And that's one of the things we've been working on. You know, the, you said that the only way to definitively diagnose CTE is by autopsy. Can't do much for the patient once they're dead mm. if you can't diagnose it and then try to help them. Where, where are you in the, the, the continuing uh, search for that holy grail? And, and what are you doing research-wise? Where, where are we with, with the ability to come up with a diagnosis, a way to diagnose, and a way to help these patients, uh, obviously before they either become suicidal, um, recent player in South Carolina, I believe, killed himself and others. You've seen that with the Chris Benoit case and the wrestler. I mean, where are we, Julie? Where are we headed with that, Dr. Beth? We, we, uh, we, we have to have a test to show uh, what looks like CTE and living people. Now, to be CTE, they have to have a history of having multiple concussions or being hit on the head uh, an extreme amount of time. So someone plays beginning uh, youth or high school all the way up to pro. They've literally had tens of thousands of blows to the head. So you have to have that history, and then you have to have some sort of test that will see it. So I have worked uh, uh, with the group at UCLA uh, on a PET scan uh, that shows the breakdown of tau, T-A-U protein, which is the hallmark of CTE. So. We have the world's largest experience. Uh, we've scanned dozens of uh, former athletes and military personnel, as you know. Uh, so that's uh, uh, very, very exciting uh, for us to be a part of that. Uh, and we look forward to a uh, phase three trial by the FDA as they have uh, approved that to get going to hopefully uh, definitively prove that it's an accurate and beneficial test. Again, for the deposition of tau in the brain, the tau protein that seems to be causing the problem through autopsy. You, you've mentioned this to me many times, but I think our listeners would be interested. It's not just a big knockout blow or, or the, the, the big collision. It's the repetitive subconcussive blows that may be causing the problem. At least that, I think, is some of your theory. A subconcussion means that you've had a hit on the head and it didn't rise to the level of a known or diagnosed concussion. And that's uh, uh, numerous times in American football players, more than any other sport. Now, other sports like soccer or ice hockey, uh, uh, lacrosse, wrestling, you can have concussions. But the issue is not so much the number of concussions. It is the number of head impacts, blows to the head, or subconcussion, as we say. Uh, so Junior Sehau, who was diagnosed by the NIH at autopsy of having CTE, played football 30 years, he never had a concussion. And Mike Webster, the first case, played 27 years, never had a known concussion. So it's not truly concussion. It's exposure to multiple uh, hits to the head, tens of thousands. 
And that has been a lot of your drive in your messaging, and maybe that's a, an opportunity for you to say it again today, is for coach old-school coaches that want to go out there and beat their kids to death and get their team ready, toughen them up, those kind of things. But it's limiting the exposures and limiting the amount of, I think you call it gratuitous head contact. Talk about that and how that's changed the game in the last, Nick Saban's a friend of yours. Um, and how, how involved and how forward-thinking is a coach like Coach Saban, who's a tough old coach? Uh, he, he, he is exactly that, but he's also uh, very brilliant, as people realize, and he realizes that uh, you have to take head contact out of the sport. Hitting your head does not help anyone, so every sport needs to figure out a way to limit this unnecessary head contact. Uh, I've been involved with Pop Warner football, the oldest and largest youth football league in the country. And starting 2012, we took contact drills out of practice. We limited contact uh, to only uh, uh, one-fourth of all practice time. So if they practice eight hours a week, they only had contact two hours. We changed the rules. We eliminated the kickoff for the younger players. We've taken the linemen out of the three-point stance. Uh, we certainly have flag football if that's what they want to play. But every sport, and particularly football, has to work continuing to, to remove the unnecessary contact. And the sport's going to change. It already has changed. There's not the jacked-up collisions we used to like to watch. Uh, but it's uh, it's got to evolve if it's going to be around. And how – just talk about Coach Saban again. I, and again, I happen to know that you're very good friends with him. And vacation with him, spend a lot of time with Coach Saban. What makes him so special? Uh, it's a combination of really knowing the sport, but um, running running the program and the way he does. I look at him as like a CEO in addition to be a coach. So he has great respect because he's been uh, uh, very much following the rules and, and he uh, – is able to evolve quickly when he sees things like uh, this head contact issue, for example. So his, his insight, his knowledge of the game, certainly, but his insight and his ability to administer a program uh, in the right way and follow the rules and, uh, and at the same time be a great recruiter. Yeah, he gets the best players, but he's uh, the hardest working guy I've ever seen. I know you and I are both big LSU fans and the football fans, but we both recognize and are very impressed. And you have to just simply respect his success. Uh, he's the best. And not a lot of people thought anybody would surpass Bear Bryant, but I think it's pretty safe to say he has. Uh, and he's an amazing guy, an amazing coach. Uh, no question. I agree. And I, I told someone recently, although he's getting older, I, gee, I think I look at him as being in his prime as a coach. Signed the best class in the country this year and lost all of his assistant coaches. Uh, it's amazing what uh, he's done uh, at Alabama and will continue to do. Again, Dr. Julian Bales is our, our guest. and really appreciate, Julian, you giving your time for us. But to go back a little bit and finish up the, the areas of research where, where you're at, you talked about the this is a cellular injury and an inflammatory disease process at the cellular level, and it's the phosphorylation of tau. Where's the research headed in identifying someone's, quote, tau burden and how that develops? And are there things in the pipeline that you're involved in that may hopefully come up with a therapeutic that could dissipate tau 
or limit someone's burden of tau growing over time? Uh, that, that's a rather long convoluted question, but can you talk about how the research is headed in that direction? Well, it's about exposure. It's not about number of concussions, as we said, and it's about limiting the, the number of times and the velocity which with your hit on the head. So I think you first uh, introduced to me the, the concept of tau burden, and, and uh, for me, you, you first coined that term, and that is a great term that we still use, and that is, you know, how much tau, how much broken down brain protein do you have in, the, in, in your head and uh, are they in a pattern that's consistent with CTE and you know through the work that you know about and been involved with at UCLA we really think we're the world's leader at, at the company Saramark in visualizing that. Again if you don't visualize it you don't know how many people are going to die with it how many are going to have progression of it getting worse or how many people may stabilize. And if you don't have a way to see it while they're alive, you can't develop drugs. So we have, uh, we're early in early stages of a new drug that was come out of uh, my lab, and that is uh, looking at one of the mechanisms which causes CTE, which causes the brain cell to, to fail and uh, begin to sort of self-destruct. And for these connecting fibers, which supposedly we all have 100,000 miles of connecting fibers, in our brains uh, for these fibers to begin to get broken down and not not function normally. So uh, the, the test is really vital to, to helping uh, demonstrate that, that there is a therapeutic and, and that it may prevent that progression of inflammation and damage that in some people probably continues to roll on. And if the, the injury at the cellular level, if the, the, the tau is building up, basically, for layman's terms, uh, is basically the brain stops communicating with itself and therefore you get the dementia and obviously location in the areas of the brain wh where it may be developing is obviously very important as well. It's location. Yeah, it's the location. It's the density of the breakdown. It's the density of the collection of tau pro broken down tau protein. Well, Dr. Bell, this has been fascinating. It, I know I always enjoy talking with you, learning from you, and visiting with you. You know, there were several of us that nominated you for the LSU uh, Hall of Fame five or six years ago, and I remember having a conversation with some of the people who were making the decision, and I said, if Dr. Bales doesn't get in, then we just need to do away with the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I was so glad that didn't happen. <laughs> well, you're an, an amazing person, uh, and, and you're, you've obviously helped a lot of people throughout your career. Uh, and, and you're so generous with your time in educating young people, coaches, athletic trainers, uh, from the highest level uh, of the NFL, but all the way down to high. I've seen you give so many speeches to young high school athletic trainers and coaches about an issue that's very, very important to you in, in your career. And you, you've been a pioneer. Uh, and again, Dr. Julian Bells has been our guest today on Billy West Live. Julian, thank you so much for Thank time. you. Thank you. Enjoy being here. Thank you. <laughs>